This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program. It is Thursday, which is always one of our biggest shows, getting ready for the weekend. And, uh, you know, since it's the last show of the week, we feel like it's important to make sure that at least once a week that we give you an update on this, that we keep you in the know. And so we're going to go ahead and start with our latest coronavirus update. So we'll go ahead and show you the latest numbers from the Alabama Department of Public Health. You can check them out right here, and you can see there on our interactive map that what is going on, you can see that there's a large concentration of the percentage of population when it comes to the sort of the the black belt there the river region uh, especially when you you can kind of tell that that's where a lot of the newer cases a lot of the concentration is but uh, you will see there that Alabama has 32,753 confirmed cases 369,005 people have been tested 880 deaths in the state of Alabama and 2,612 hospitalizations, along with uh, 18,886 presumed recoveries. So that is a, a decent amount of recoveries. And like I said, that's that's kind of like the, uh, the death and hospitalizations. That is also a lagging statistic. And so uh, it is reflective of how many people have likely recovered from it because I'm, you know, based on how they calculate that. But it also... Does a it lags a little bit and it's a pretty significant underscoring of what the actual number is and and they admit that as well it's it's no fault of theirs it's not like they're hiding the ball here that's just you know the way that the data happens to work uh, it is interesting to note and we've been keeping an eye on this the past several weeks because it has been dropping so quickly that the fatality rate based on the numbers now is two point six nine so it is still dropping but not quite as quickly, so still in, in the right direction, just not as fast as it was recently, as we have seen in the past few weeks, because you may recall that last week it was 288, and that was down from like, uh, I think it was a, it was almost an entire percentage point in a week, which was wildly out of the norm, and so the death rate dropping by that much, it, it was a combination of the fact that we had so many new cases last week combined with very, very few deaths, and of course, having that for a solid week is going to make that fatality rate drop very, very quickly. So it is still dropping, still going down. We're still heading in the right direction. It's just not doing so with the pace that it was previously. And so uh, still good news, just not news that is quite as good as we did the week before. Now, let's go ahead and look at the new cases here in the Yellowhammer State. You can see on this graphic... This is the data from the Alabama Department of Public Health that actually today is the most recorded new cases that we have ever had. And it's by a not a huge margin because there are a few other days that at least come close to it. But you can see there what is really significant is that we are having over a thousand days that has happened before, but not very frequently. And it is the most that we have had. This is a, a lot of new cases in a 24 hour period. Now you'll see that earlier in the week we actually had a little bit of a dearth in cases and this is partly making up for it but either way you look at it no matter how you slice it the cases are up like that's just 
there's no, it needs no further explanation than that the cases are pretty high. We've seen a trend of very high cases over the past several days. This is, I believe, the third day, maybe the fourth day that Alabama has that exceeded 1,000 cases in a single day. So this is by no means small potatoes. This is definitely a significant event within the records and keeping track of all of this. But, you know, like I said, what really matters is how we're doing by comparison. And what really matters even more than that is not so much the new cases, which, you know, could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on what the ultimate final verdict is on those cases. What is really, really important is not necessarily the spread and the number of people that have the virus. What is more important is the level of hospitalizations that we're having. Is that something that could potentially overwhelm the system? And then, of course, the deaths, which we're going to look at later. But let's look at cases for right now and do a comparison. So our seven-day average for this week, to give you an idea of how we did this week, was 708 new people per day in this seven-day period getting the coronavirus and testing positive for that. Now, our previous seven-day period, so in other words, last week, was 760. So pretty similar, but that is a drop of 52 people per day. And again, you, you look at the chart, and I know that, especially when you're looking at graphics, your eye just tends to be drawn to the outlier, And so a person could look at this graph or a similar one that shows new coronavirus cases in Alabama and mistakenly believe that this week was far worse than last week because we had the highest number of new cases in this week. And I mean, that's just a really spooky looking spike. But like I said, if you're looking earlier in the week, our numbers were actually very low, very moderate. And if you're looking at the seven day average, how many we had over a seven day period on average we're actually down a little bit, not by much. It's it's very similar to what we had last week, but uh, 52 less people a day getting the virus overall, that's actually good. We're actually, oddly enough, heading in the right direction when it comes to that, even though looking at that chart, you would not suspect that. Now, that, that could change. Uh, if we have days that are similar to today, which of course today was a, a pretty drastic outlier, if we have days that are similar to today, and we have those sustained over, you know, three or four days into the future, well, that could be very bad. But if today is just a weird outlier, which we've seen happen many times since we've been tracing this, then that's not necessarily the case. Overall, we actually are heading in the right direction, or I don't don't even know if it's technically the right direction, because if we're, we're vying to be better equipped for this thing in the future, if we're going for herd immunity and more people having antibodies to this thing, in the future, whether they wound up having the symptoms or not, then actually more infections is a positive. So it really does depend on how you look at it. But either way, we are having, we have less infections this week than we did last week. Now let's look quick at the 35 day um, totals and and the averages over the 35 day period. Now you may be asking if this is your first coronavirus update from the show. Well, Caleb, why 35 days? That seems like a really odd random number that you just pulled out of nowhere. Well, actually, it's not. The reason that I chose 35 days is because it has been 35 days since the state of Alabama officially reopened. Now, I've been saying for a long time, and if you've been watching this program, you absolutely are aware of this, that I think that we actually technically started reopening about two weeks before the official reopen occurred. I think that people started to pretty much get back to their normal lives about two weeks prior to when Grandma Ivy decided to reopen officially. 
But nonetheless, we look at the 35-day, and that's partly to measure the success and the effectiveness of the government-mandated shutdown and whether or not it actually did make a difference. So looking at that, we have a 35-day average of this 35-day period, the 35 days since the government officially reopened, of 556 cases per day. The previous 35-day average, 255. So that's a pretty substantial difference. That is uh, more than doubling the, the number of cases per day since the shutdown ended, and that comes to an increase of 301 new people with cases per day on average since the shutdown ended. So like I said from the beginning, like everybody predicted, whether you were in favor of the shutdown or not, I happen to fall on the not category in that one. But whether you agreed with it or not, everybody knew, yeah, cases are going to go up once everything starts getting back to normal. You're going to see an increase in cases. That was never the question. The question is, will it overwhelm our healthcare system? We're going to have so many cases that we run out of medical supplies and, and don't have beds to put everybody. And is it going to cause more people to die? So those are the more important questions. We're going to get to get those in just a second. But before we do, let's go ahead and look and see how we are doing statewide on testing. So this is the testing from the state of Alabama. And you can see there, because this is new testing, so this is how much testing we're doing per day. Today was also a pretty substantial day for testing. It's one of the top 10 highest days that we have had in the state of Alabama since they've been tracking this thing. It's definitely not the highest, but it, you know, still being in the top 10, that makes it pretty significant. We've been about average pretty much the entirety of this week before. And so kind of a mediocre week. Let's see how we did against last week. The seven-day average for testing this week was 6,697. The previous seven-day period, so the week before, 6,238. So that is an increase of 459 more tests per day. So when you're dealing with testing, obviously dealing with larger numbers, so 459 people more per day is an increase, is not necessarily like absolutely killing it, but it's also doing pretty well. That, that's a substantial increase. That's not a statistically insignificant jump from going from about 6,200 uh, 6, a day to 6,600 a day. That, that's a big leap. And uh, the people of Alabama ought to be commended on that. Now, the 35-day average is even more drastic. Our 35-day average on testing for the 35-day period that we are in currently, 5,602. And the previous 35-day period, in other words, the 35 days before the shutdown ended, that would be six or sorry, 3,902. So that's an increase of about 1,700 more tests per day. So really good news on that front. We've really started ramping up our testing. Now, if you're wondering how we're doing compared to other states, it's about the same. I've done state-by-state -state comparison several times, and the thing is I've done them so often that I kind of feel like they've become kind of a moot point because they keep showing the same thing. We're in the same ranking with the other states. We, we haven't really moved at all. Uh, I think on cases we we jumped from 25th to 24th, and I think it was Washington State that wound up uh, you know, something – or maybe that was deaths per million. I don't know. Either way, uh, Alabama has remained fairly stagnant, and the truth is all the states have remained fairly stagnant. There's very few states that have done something significantly different that caused them to shoot up or to shoot down 
in the comparison to other states, and Alabama is no exception to that. We started out about middle of the pack, right around 24, 25, in most of these stats, and we're really about the same now. So that really doesn't bear a whole lot of, of time and reflection upon that because it's about the same as it's been for you know the past couple months. Now, let's go ahead and look at our next statistic, hospitalizations. And this is, of course, a really important one. So you can see there are hospitalizations. Had a lot of hospitalizations five days ago. And that was something of great concern. Now, to be fair, because I do want to give an even-handed take on this, you may notice that for the two days prior to our giant spike in hospitalizations, we have no hospitalizations. And I think that that was a record-keeping thing. The state of Alabama's website that they used to track all of this, it actually said no data available. So it didn't just stay at one level. It just said that the data wasn't available, which leads me to believe that there was some kind of reporting or a computer error, which also means that that really, really big giant spike, probably not nearly as big as it should have been. If you broke it down into thirds, it'd be about normal. And then it would be followed by a really slow day, followed by three days where we're reaching close to 50 hospitalizations a day. Certainly not great, but not nearly as bad as it may seem just at first glance. And so let's go ahead and look at our averages because our averages are up a little bit and that's important. So our averages for the seven day average, in other words, this week is 34 hospitalizations. The previous seven day average only 30. So in the span of one week, we are averaging four more people hospitalized in the state of Alabama per day than we were beforehand. That's significant. And that's not something that ought to be ignored. Uh, the fact that we are on the rise when it comes to hospitalizations is something that is somewhat concerning. And the fact that we're doing worse than last week when last week was, you know, by no means great, that's something to be concerned about. So, uh, we're not anywhere near, just to give a little context, we're not anywhere near the levels that we would have to be to cause some kind of system meltdown. It's not like people are going to be denied medical care. There's not going to be beds for them or we're going to have people put on ventilators. Right now, there is absolutely no indication that we will get to those levels anytime soon. But the fact that we did have a big week in hospitalizations means this is definitely something we need to keep an eye on to make sure we don't get to that point. And this is one of the reasons that I'm, I'm really cautious with people and telling them, look, I was against the government shutdowns from the very beginning. I don't think that it's the government's role to even engage in a shutdown. And I disagree with a lot of the dumb remarks and, and stupid things that states, both Alabama as a state and other states have done. But that doesn't mean you need to throw caution to the wind and ignore everything. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is something that is serious. It's something that you need to pay attention to. Just because I think that the reaction was completely overly heavy-handed, which I still hold to to this day, uh, and the numbers bear that out. The numbers are actually evidence that, that strengthens my argument in that. I also hold to the belief that that doesn't mean that you should ignore it or think that it's nothing. We, we, can we can walk and chew gum at the same time here. We can believe that the government reaction to it was way overblown, way over the top, and it caused way more damage than just the virus doing nothing would have done. But you can also simultaneously believe that the virus is serious and should be taken seriously, and we need to be a little extra cautious right now. You can believe both of those things at the same time, and, and that's actually what I do believe. So when it comes to hospitalizations, we have increased by four over a seven-day period, but let's look at the 35-day period. 
So the 35-day period that we are in right now, so in other words, the span of time from the time that the shutdown officially ended until today, we have had 30 hospitalizations on average per week. Now, when you look at hospitalizations compared to the previous 35-day period, it's 28. That's only a difference of two people per day. And so the idea that even this spike that we had this week, which was significant, something that we need to keep an eye on, is something that we need to start panicking over. And I, I saw countless articles this week that were just trying to scare people talking about the increase in case numbers. Like, well, why aren't you reporting the fact that we're only having, at least if you're looking at the numbers, two more people per day, even with the spike, than we were having when we did have the shutdown. Like that, that would, I think, go a long way in helping people really understand this. That only takes, what, a sentence or two? I, you could make it a tiny little paragraph in a news article, and adding that would help people really understand what these numbers mean, but they don't do that. But anyway, that difference in a 35-day average, it's also important to keep in mind that because we're doing a 35-day average now, since it's been 35 days since the shutdown ended, that also means that I'm having to extend it on the other end. In other words, we're doing 35 days after the shutdown, but we expanded from 28 to 35 days before the shutdown too. And the thing is, I can't extend it much longer because then it's going to give us a false idea of what the data is going to look like because we're literally going to get into the early parts of this thing and we're going to run out of time where we were shut down because I believe the shutdown started on March 28th where we're getting dangerously close to that mark and the further back we go the more that the low numbers would be accounted for this virus just now getting kicked off as opposed to it being a good measure of how we're handling things once you know it's an uneven playing field. Um, it would be like measuring, you, you can measure the growth and the, the skill of a baseball player, for example. You can measure his skill and his growth by delving back into his minor league career. You can do so delving back even into his college and high school career to a degree, but you're going to hit a cutoff point to where the low numbers that he may be putting up probably has a lot more to do with the fact that he's in Little League than it is that he just wasn't a good player back then, and then that could skew the idea that you're trying to show. And so uh, I'm not exactly sure what we're going to do. I may just wind up doing it a flat 30-day and doing the last 30 days compared to the previous 30 days. Uh, that may be what we have to do next week. I'm not sure. But we're getting into the territory to where the numbers would actually just be off because we didn't have that many people that even had the virus back then because it had just started entering the state of Alabama. And so if I do that much more, we're going to wind up, you know, giving you an incorrect impression. And so there's a little bit of that going on here. So remember that even with a two person per day increase, which is not exactly huge, even with that, we're starting to get into the territory to where the hospitalizations were really, really low. And even with that, and even with a big spike this week, all of that combined, it was still only a difference of two people. Which goes to show you that the hospitalizations are not nearly as bad as the media is trying to make it out to be. Like I said, doesn't mean that there's no concern there, doesn't mean it's not something that people should pay attention to, but the way that I'm seeing these articles written and the way that I'm seeing people react to them, you would think that they, they believe that the hospitalization, or sorry, the hospital system is going to be completely swamped within a couple of days, and if we don't do something drastic, it's not going to be fixed. That's simply not true. And looking at the data, it doesn't suggest 
that that would be true. So let's go ahead and look at our, our final stat, deaths. Now, it is, of course, unfortunate that, and you can see it on the graph there that we have had, because uh, this is new coronavirus deaths, this isn't total, but you can see there that we have had a pretty substantial two-day jump this week, but you'll also notice that the days on either side of those two days, yesterday and the day before, that were pretty big, have been incredibly small. And so they're somewhat offset by the fact that we've had lower than average deaths earlier in the week and then today, because I think today we only had one or two deaths. I believe that was, that was it. So that being said, what we now know about this thing, and, and let's go ahead and compare it to last week. So this week is a significantly worse. I would say significantly worse is, is appropriate. Significantly worse than last week because our seven-day average was 11.3 people dying per day due to COVID-19. The previous seven-day period, in other words, last week, 7.3. So that's an increase of four. Four more people dying per day this week than last week. That's not insignificant. That is not at all insignificant. And so just like hospitalizations, we've had a sharp increase, at least for this one week. And that is something that we definitely need to be concerned about, keep an eye on, that kind of thing. However, when you look at the 35-day uh, period, it does give you a very different story. Because even when you count the fact that we've had far more deaths this week than last week, that we've had a substantial increase in the rate at which people die from this disease, the 35-day average of people dying per day in the state of Alabama for this 35-day period is still only 10. And the 35-day period that happened during the shutdown before Governor Ivey decided to reopen and, and do the safer-at-home orders is 12.8. So that's still a decrease of 2.8. Now, the previous several weeks, you can understand and see why we've actually been seeing a very, very different story. Because the previous several weeks, you were looking at the numbers and you were saying, man, we're, we're seeing decreases of four, five, six, seven people per day less than we were during the actual government shutdown. But on this one, uh, it's it's still less, even when you consider that this was a much worse week than normal, even when you consider we have more deaths this week than we did last week, even with all of those factors working against it, we are still having a significant amount of less deaths than we were when the shutdown was occurring. Again, what I'm frustrated by is that the media is presenting this as though this is something that we need to be terrified by. Uh, when the case numbers go up, that's obviously something that needs to be, you know, needs to be monitored and checked and, and see if this is going to be something that's going to lead into a problem later on. But if our cases are continuing to go up and our hospitalizations remain roughly stagnant and our deaths are actually on the decline, even when you do have a bad week, even when you do factor that in, that you're still getting less deaths overall than you were during the shutdown that's not something that we need to start sounding the alarm on just yet. That's not a time to, okay, everybody jump into the lifeboats and we're going to try to keep you safe. It's like, well, we haven't even hit an iceberg yet. <laughs> like, there's not even an iceberg in sight. We don't even know about an iceberg. That's kind of the scenario that you're talking about there. There's no reason to, to do all of that, because I know some people have talked about, like, re-shutting down the state and Governor Ivey needs to re-implement the orders. 
there's nothing in the data that suggests that that would be an effective thing to do, or even if it were an effective thing, that we are at the levels that would be unsustainable that would justify it, even if it did work. But there are some things that I think I can add here that will give you a little perspective on each of these numbers, and I think this is important. So there are 32,753 with the Kung flu in the state of Alabama. That's a lot of people. That's not chump change. But it's also important to note that when this, when you consider that this state has 4.9 million people within its borders, that that's only 0.7 or sorry, 0.67% of Alabama's population. So we're barely over the two thirds of 1% mark of people that actually have had this disease. That's what we have just now crossed as a threshold. Not even 1% of the population is tested positive for this thing. Now, actually, the number is, is likely to be a little bit higher than that. But because of antibody testing, and we'll actually get into that in a second. But nonetheless, that's not fatalities. That's not hospitalizations. That's just the number of people that have tested positive for this disease, it's two-thirds of 1%. That's it. And again, this is not Caleb trying to say, hey, go out, just return to normal life, do everything the way that you did before, don't take in precautions. Not saying that at all. Never advocated for that. But I'm saying adding that perspective helps us understand this thing is not the apocalyptic level event that we were sold on, that we were told that it was going to be. When it comes to Montgomery County specifically, because I know that Montgomery, Montgomery County has been labeled a hot zone, and that's because it is. I'm not denying that at all. But remember that Montgomery County has a rate, and this is on the chart that we just showed you, of 1,460 cases per 100,000 people. So that's substantially more than average when you're looking at the Yellowhammer State overall, but it's still only 1.5%. It's about double but still 1.5% of the city of Montgomery having this disease doesn't mean it's insignificant, doesn't mean that we need to just ignore it, but that's in a three-month period. That's not even all at once. In a three-month period, we have had approximately 1.5% of Montgomery's entire population coming down with this thing, and Montgomery County is one of the ones with the higher concentrations. If you were to include the entirety of the river region, if you were to include, for example, Elmore and Atauga County. Now, if you include Lowndes County, the number is actually going to go up because Lowndes County actually has a very high percentage of its people with it. So, but, but if you get an overall look at the river region, my point in all of that is that's still a really, really small percentage of the overall population. Now, let's, of course, look at the most important statistic when you look at deaths. 880 Alabamians have died since this thing started. That is, of course, tragic. Even one life lost to this disease, especially when you consider it could have been prevented by the Chinese Communist Party. Of course that is terrible and tragic. But again, just to add some perspective here, that if only 888 people in Alabama have died, horrible as that is, that means 0.02% of our population has passed away because of this disease. I mean, that's incredibly small. 
that's a very, very tiny percentage of our overall population. Now, uh, that being said, Montgomery does account for about 10% of the entire state's deaths. So that's not chump change. That's not small potatoes. The fact that Montgomery, not even the largest city in the state of Alabama, that Montgomery County accounts for roughly 10% of the entire state's death toll, because right now we're sitting at 88, and then the total, of course, is 880. So, I mean, that's really easy math to do. Even I can do that. We, we've got about 10% of the state's deaths. And so that's that's not an insignificant thing. Now, it could also, there, there's probably a number of reasons that that is the case. We have a older population compared to some of the other major city, cities. Like, we're significantly older than Huntsville, for example. Huntsville has a lot of younger people that are moving in there. Uh, your Auburn and your Tuscaloosa has a much younger population, partly because of the colleges there. Uh, Montgomery, as a whole, as a city, we tend to have an older population. We tend to have a population that is majority black, which, you know, tend to also be more susceptible to the virus based on a number of other uh, qualities. And, and, you know, we're, we're still researching that, still trying to understand all of that. And I, I get that that's part of the issue as well. There's a high level of poverty here. And so all of those things do factor in. I'm not trying to dismiss them or trying to point to one specific thing. But, you know, the fact that Montgomery accounts for roughly 10% of the entire state's deaths, that is not an insignificant statistic. But another thing to, to note that is of uh, incredible importance in this whole thing is that when you're dealing with a virus like this, it is less fatal to the vast majority of the population, but it is what is known as high impact. And there's a, a couple different things that you need to know to really understand that. First of all, it's high impact in the sense that if you get it, it's going to lay you out for a few days. I've talked to several people that have survived the virus so far, people my age, people that are a little bit older, uh, all kinds of different age ranges. I even uh, know a friend of a friend has a, a child that actually contracted it. And that's another thing. Some people online are spreading the myth that children can't get it. Well, they can get it, and it is something that is very uncomfortable. The death rate, the fatality rate of people under that age group is practically non-existent. I mean, it's basically zero if you're looking at the numbers. However, it is high impact in the sense that even if you get it, even though it's not going to kill you, most likely, you are going to be out of it for a few days. Like, it's, it's a butt kicker. And one of the strangest things about this thing is it robs you of your sense of smell and taste for a little while, which is a very, very odd symptom. So it's very uncomfortable. You definitely don't want this thing. Even if you'll survive it, it's best to just try not to get it. And it's also very high impact in the sense that if you do have one of those risk factors, then you catching that is going to be far worse than you catching the flu. You catching that is going to be significantly worse than you catching a common cold. That's something that actually can put your life at risk. Now, the flu can technically do that as well, but the coronavirus, just based on what we know about it right now, is more likely to do so. And so it is high impact, and that's something that we need to be concerned about. But the idea that this is going to kill off a large percentage of our population, there's just absolutely no data to suggest that that is anywhere close to true. It's also true that right now we have no suspicion, there's no reason to believe that even going at our current rate, even if it gets a little worse, that this thing is going to significantly impact our hospital system at least uh, anything more than just a busy flu season would.
So it looks like we're actually very, very good on those fronts. And this is another piece of good news on this virus. According to a new study that was done by the CDC, they reported it last night, actually, that they believe that the people with the coronavirus are roughly 10 times as many as originally reported or originally thought to be those uh, with confirmed cases. They think that it's actually about 10 times what is being reported. This is via Reuters, and they write, The officials, speaking to a small group of reporters on Wednesday night, said the estimate was based on the number of known cases between 2.3 million and 2.4 million, multiplied by the average rate of antibodies seen in the seriology test about 10 to 1. If you multiply the cases by that ratio, that's where you get that 20 million figure, one official said. That's excellent news. The more people we find with this antibody... And the more people that we see that actually do, because if you have the antibodies, it means that you got the virus and you could, of course, test positive for the antibodies if you did experience symptoms. And I imagine that at least a section of the population did. They just didn't get officially tested. And so uh, with the new antibody testing, that means that there were some people that got it, didn't know that they had it, got it, maybe got a very mild case of it, or maybe were asymptomatic completely which is really good because recent data also suggests that asymptomatic people are also not contagious. So that's, that's really, really encouraging. But ultimately what it boils down to and, and what it seems to suggest is that there are 10 times as many people that actually have this thing than we thought. So that serves a couple different purposes. First of all, it's really, really good for the herd immunity argument. Because if we're that much closer than we thought we were to getting a large percentage of the American population basically immune to this thing, at least for a while, like maybe it winds up mutating and maybe it causes problems for us down the road. So far, at least based on everything that I've seen, that it hasn't, that once you have the antibodies, you're more or less free and clear, at least for a little while, or at least until your body stops producing them. When it does that, we just don't know yet. We don't have the data on that yet, but doctors have suggested that it will stay in the body long enough uh, for it to make a significant difference, and we could wind up with something like the flu every year to where there may be a different strain every year and we have to to change it and, and make it evolve and that kind of thing and, and change the vaccine periodically. But even if that happens, if we do get a vaccine, that's going to go a long way in combating this thing. But nonetheless, uh, that would also mean, and I think that this is the most significant piece of data, that if that is the case, that means that the real Alabama fatality rate, you remember that we said earlier it was about 2.7 if you round up, 2.7%, well, that would move the decimal place and it would be 0.27. So if that's the case, that means Alabama's fatality rate is just a little more than the regular flu. And there's no reason to believe that this wouldn't be the case. This is the CDC that is putting this out. The, the CDC is the one conducting this study and, and they're you know doing the sampling and everything and making sure, and, and especially with as gun-shy as the CDC has been to put out good news on this thing, if they're putting it out, my guess is they're doing so because they have good evidence to believe that that is the case. And that would also bring the United States fatality rate down to 0.51, so barely over a half a percentage if these stats are to, to be believed. And remember, this is the fatality rate of those that have tested positive, not the country as a whole. Which is even better news because that means 
even if you get the virus and even if you're going by the higher statistic, the overall statistic in the United States, and there's a number of reasons why Alabama's fatality rate may be significantly lower. Uh, a lot of it has to do with we're just not as densely populated. Uh, that, that may be a big part of it because New York alone is part of the reason for an awful lot of the, the deaths in the United States. And so that fudges the numbers just a little bit. But if you're looking at the overall U.S. fatality rate, even if you're using that statistic, then that means that this thing isn't nearly as fatal as we thought that it was. Now, granted, 0.5 is still five times worse than the flu. So, again, this doesn't mean that this is completely insignificant. We don't have to worry about it. But it certainly wouldn't be something to where we'd have to do like a lot of people have predicted, where uh, we see cases break out and we have to all of a sudden shut the economy down for a little while, or that we may have to shut the economy down for 18 months or, or however long it takes to get a vaccine. There's been lots of different suggestions on this. But ultimately, it looks like if, if any of these numbers are to be believed, that this thing is nowhere near deadly enough to justify that, not even close. And that would certainly be good news for us. But since this should be universally good news, since this should be something that the whole of humanity looks at and goes, man, that's fantastic. That means this virus is way less deadly than we thought. That means that there's really no reason to shut anything down when there's an outbreak. Uh, the risk is far lower than we originally thought. If you're seeing people that push back on this or don't like this or saying this isn't true or it seems like they just are really pulling for the virus to be deadlier than it really is, then what you should automatically do, your reaction to that should be suspicion at their motives. Because why would anybody pull for a virus to be deadlier than it actually is? That doesn't make any sense unless their primary motivation has nothing to do with saving human lives or keeping people safe. If their primary motivation is that they got married to a narrative early on and they don't want to admit that they're wrong and so they want to cling to it as tight as they can, or they have some kind of more sinister political motivation that they would just rather the data not be true because they believe that the data that they had initially or the ideas about this virus that they had initially are going to further their political opinion of it more so, that's a person to automatically be suspicious of. It's actually the same thing that we were talking about earlier this week with the Bubba Wallace thing. Like, any normal human being rea being's reaction to that would be, oh, pff, thank goodness, means there wasn't a hate crime against me. Like, the second that the FBI dropped the news that what they thought was a noose was in fact just a pull-down for a garage door, any normal human being's reaction, whether you're Bubba Wallace or whether you're other people that were just aghast at the fact that anybody would, would try to hang a noose uh, as a threat to him because he was a black person, which absolutely legitimate if that had actually happened. It didn't, but if it had, we can all understand why that would be something to legitimately be upset about. But when the reaction was, well, we want to hold on to this narrative, we want to continue to say that it was a noose, we want to continue to say that a hate crime uh, did take place instead of, oh, wow, thank goodness, it turns out that a hate crime wasn't committed against me. Um, when all of a sudden that is the reaction, that's when you got to take a step back and go, huh, wonder what the real motivation here is. I wonder why they would rather there be a hate crime than not. 
And I think the same thing is true here. Anybody that's looking at this data, looking at the fact that this would drive the fatality rate down to where a lot of experts were predicting it has been for as long as about a month and a half. You remember I was talking about the report about a month and a half ago that said that a lot of doctors are saying that the real fatality rate is probably a lot closer to anywhere between 0.2 and 0.5. Well, this data puts that exactly where it is. The fatality rate for Alabama is a little bit above 0.2 the fatality rate for America would be slightly below 0.6. So that would be right in that range that a lot of doctors were telling people a couple months ago that it would actually be. If you're looking at anybody looking at this data and going, hmm, don't know about that, I'm I'm really, uh, if they seem like they want this data to be incorrect, you're probably dealing with somebody that they're, they have some kind of political philosophy that they believe the virus being far more deadly would help them with, and that's why they want to believe that it's deadlier than it really is. Or you're dealing with somebody that just really hates to admit that they're wrong or that what they originally believed was wrong, and so they want it to be a lot deadlier than the flu or a lot deadlier than another uh, virus or, or disease, and that's the reason that they're really clinging to that. Normally, if that's the what you run into, that's probably going to be the motivation behind that. And, and that's really something that's kind of true in general. If there is somebody that is immune to facts, and in other words, you present new data, new information, you present things that really do counteract what they believe, and they don't have an answer for it or a counter to explain why they don't believe that or why what you're presenting isn't true, they're just angry that you presented it, that's a good indication of somebody that is immune to new information. In other words, they refuse to change their name, or sorry, refuse to change their mind based upon new information being presented to them. And and generally speaking, that means that there's really not a whole lot that you can do for them or to convince them. But switching gears here to another local story, there was something that I found a little disconcerting, and it has to do with football here in the state of Alabama. Alabama football released a video earlier today that voiced their support for Black Lives Matter really bothers me, but the thing that I think is most disappointing about it is it actually starts out pretty darn good. Like, I actually had no problems with it until, I don't know, like a minute and a half into the video, and so we'll go ahead and play that for you, and you can you can watch that and sort of make a decision for yourself, but I'm going to do a little commentary on this as we play. This was put out by Alabama. Um, we've got four blocks well, in Seattle that you just saw pictures of that is more like a block party. There we go. We are a team, black, white, brown. Together, we are a family. We are brothers. We represent ourselves, our families, our hometowns, our university, and our country. We stand on the shoulders of giants. Our grandparents yeah, so and so parents. Good. Our ancestors, our heroes, Alabama alumni, and former players who have changed the world. Beginning on our historic campus, we speak as one, acknowledging our history. Honoring their legacy and building a better, more just future. Okay. On the field, we are relentless. We are strong. We are conquerors. But we are human beings first. And okay, in this yeah. moment in history, we can't be silent. We must speak up for our brothers and sisters for our sons and daughters. We speak for justice, for fairness, for equality, for greater understanding. We stand together against racism, 
against okay, brutality, against violence. For a better world. When we see our families, our neighbors, our classmates subjected to violence, we recognize the fear in their eyes. And when we experience racism, it hurts. In the game, we are one team. One heartbeat, one mission. Yet, we are diverse. We don't always agree, but we learn so much from each other. And we are so much better together. Until I listen with an open heart and mind, I can't understand his experience and his pain. The virus has shown us how much we benefit from being together. And how much we need each other. We believe the solutions to our challenges are within us. We choose to listen. We choose to hear. And understand others' perspectives. Let's listen. Let's unite. Because all lives can't matter until black lives matter. Until black lives matter. Until black lives matter. Until black lives matter. Because all lives can't matter until black lives matter. Not true. All right, so you get the gist of it there. And one thing that I wanted to point out before we do sort of a dive into the the underlying things here, I do think it's really funny that Coach Saban there was saying, uh, I I can't understand uh, his pain, his suffering, his experience. And it conjoins that with, and I have to listen with an open mind and heart. Well, if you can't understand, what's the point of listening? Like, I agree with Coach Saban, actually, that... Um, it, you need to be able to listen. You need to be able to listen with an open mind. I think that that's a, a virtuous quality in anybody, whether you're dealing with this or some other issue, just generally being a human being, that is a good philosophy to follow. But it's weird that he's like, I need to listen with an open heart and mind. I'm also openly acknowledging that even if I do, that I'm still not going to understand his experience. Okay, well, you can't walk a mile in the guy's shoes, but that doesn't mean you can't understand. Like, this is one of the strangest postmodernist ideas that I have come across, that A, you can't really comprehend and, I guess, empathize with somebody if you haven't had the exact same experience as them, which is ridiculous on a number of levels. There are several experiences that I haven't, well, I mean, all of the experiences that are technically not mine are experiences that I have not had, if you want to get really technical about it. But that doesn't mean that I can't relate. Like a person, for example, that, uh, you know, is uh, being ridiculed because of their weight, for example, and they're a girl. Well, that ridicule is going to look a little different for a female than it is a male. And so I can't have the exact same experience as them. I don't know what it's like for, because, I mean, guys don't really pick at each other for our weight nearly as often uh, as, as girls would. Or actually, we probably do, just not as ferociously. That's a better way to categorize it. Um, so I can't experience that aspect of it, but that doesn't mean I can't relate to somebody that has had, that has had weight problems in the past just because they're female. Like It's, it's a part of this ridiculous um, intersectionality, and it's so weird to me that the same people are saying, like, you need to hear our voice, you need to listen, are also the ones saying, but you can't understand me. Okay, well, if I can't understand you, then what's the point of listening? If you've already made up your mind ahead of time that no matter what is said or what is done, that I can't understand what you're going through, then why are you wasting your breath talking to me? I used to do this all the time with callers back when I I did the call-in show, is that uh, I would have callers all the time that would call in and disagree with me, and one of the very common arguments that they would use is like, well, you just you can't understand. And normally it was centered around race. Normally they would say that because I was a white guy. Not always, but 
sometimes it'd be like, well, you're a white person and you just can't understand. I was like, well, if I can't understand, why'd you call me? Like, if it's impossible for me to understand, what was the purpose of calling me to tell me that I can't understand? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense at all. If you really believed I couldn't understand, then you wouldn't bother talking to me. That, that doesn't make any sense. You are wasting your time if that is the case. So that's a, a point of contention for me. But I had three major gripes with this video and, and the overall uh, tone and theme. Like I said, I actually agree with, I would say, at least 75-80% of it. Most of that video, and we, we got to like a minute 20, a minute 30 before I even found anything I disagreed with. I agree with most of the sentiment underlying it. But some of the application and some of the conclusion of the video is absolutely absurd. And so here's my three major gripes. First of all, why does a football team feel the need to do this? This is one of the things that I've been baffled by since the very beginning. Now, I'm not one of the people like, I know that this is Laura Ingram's shtick. Um, I'm not one of the shut up and dribble people. I don't think that because you are a celebrity that you ought to just, you know, stay in your lane. And if you're a, a singer or an actor or whatever, you just need to shut up about politics. Now, I also have the right to not take you seriously because you your opinion may not be that, all that informed. Like, frankly, I don't think that Taylor Swift has a whole lot of expertise on feminism or, or any subject matter in that realm just because she happens to be a very attractive woman that can sing very well and that has made her popular. Uh, nothing wrong with that. I just don't think that it necessarily means that I have to take her all that seriously. And, and based on the arguments that she's made, I think she's proven that she shouldn't be taken seriously. But nonetheless, nonetheless, I don't think that that is necessarily the case. But what I find odd about this is that this is the Alabama football program officially putting something together. They released it on their website. They put it out on Twitter. And, and this is them getting together, and I presume, based on how you know the production quality and value and the fact that all the team got together, that this is something that the athletic department sanctioned or gave the okay to, or, or however all of that worked. This is an official statement by them. Why do we feel as though we need every single person to come out now and tell us that they're not racist? Because first of all, it kind of begs the question, well, are we to assume that you were racist before? This is the same thing with, like, Nickelodeon, and I'm not even going to get into, like, the whole Paw Patrol thing, because that's ridiculous and a whole other story on its own, but, like, Nickelodeon going off the air as a form of protest for the George Floyd thing, I'm like, it's a kid's network, which makes it even more ridiculous, but even if it wasn't a kid's network, why does a TV station feel the need to voice some kind of solidarity with the cause that they perceive, even if it's a cause that is correct, I don't understand why all these companies, because like virtually every company now has come out with some kind of statement in solidarity, which again, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be allowed to do that or that it's wrong for them to do that. I'm just saying I'm very, it's very questionable that they all feel the need that they must do this. And I think that the reason that that is, I, I think that you would find that if they were being honest about it, the reason that they all feel like they have to come out and they have to say something, you even heard it in that video, well, we, we can't be silent in a moment like this. Why do they feel that way? Because they're scared that people are going to come after them. And it again, it centers around this idea that I've been talking about for the past several days now. There is an assumption that you are racist unless you come out and prove that you are not. That is an absolutely ridiculous standard to hold. 
that every company, every organization, especially if you happen to be a white person, you have to come out and constantly declare your devotion to the cause, ergo, you're one of the bad people, you're one of the racists, you're the person that doesn't care if black people live or die. That's an absolutely absurd, illogical assumption to come to, but there's a lot of people on the left that have come to that and want to come down and, and rain down terror on people if they don't, and that's why a lot of these companies and a lot of organizations like the Alabama football team, it seems to me that that is part of the reason that they feel almost pressured to make goofy videos or statements like that, which are hilarious because they all sound exactly the same. Like every single uh, email that you get from a company that you use, any kind of diversity statement, whatever it is, they've all come out with these in the past couple of weeks and they've all sounded exactly the same. They always use the same buzzwords and everything. The second big gripe that I have with this video is there is an implication there that you should not say all lives matter. They're like, well, you can't say all lives matter until black lives matter. What's funny is, in that same assertion, they basically uh, counteract their own argument. Because, of course, the logic that they are playing off of is black lives or black people would be inclusive in the all. Well, if black people are inclusive in the all, then what's wrong with saying all lives matter? If you understand the principle that by saying all lives matter, you're saying black lives matter, you're just including everybody else in there as well, then why not just say all lives matter? Why do you feel the obligation to say specifically black lives matter if you understand that when someone says all lives matter, which I know some idiot people on the left will say is is a dog whistle and code for saying, okay, black lives really don't matter. It's like, you idiots do realize that black is included in the all, right? You, you know what the word all means? Do I need to define this for you? But if you understand that logic, if you understand that principle that all would be inclusive of black lives matter, then why not just say all lives matter? I mean, that was the mantra of the civil rights movement in the first place. Make everybody equal. Include everybody. That's the difference, and that's the reason that I disagree with so much, and I disagree with even the slogan of Black Lives Matter. I do think that there are good, well-intended people that use the slogan not realizing all the implications therein and not realizing that it is a multi-million dollar organization that funds Democrat presidential campaigns and other Democrat causes, specifically supports things like abortion and illegal immigration and homosexuality. Uh, in fact, a lot of people don't realize this, uh, Black Lives Matter was actually originally founded by a group of lesbians. And so I find that hilarious, too, that so many black people that I know are 100% against homosexuality, because they've voiced that to me before, will also support a cause like Black Lives Matter. I find that pretty hilarious as well. But anyway, not to get too far off of topic there, if you already know that and you understand that Black Lives Matter is an organization that does that. And I don't know there's a lot of people that don't realize that and don't know that. And I think you can give a little bit of grace there for people that are in ignorance. But if that's the case, and a lot of these people that are, you know, writing these diversity statements and putting material like this out there do realize that it is an actual organization that raises money, that has local chapters, all of that stuff, they're actually technically classified as a corporation, interestingly enough. They're not even technically a 501c charity. Uh, but anyway, if you understand all of that, then once that ignorance is gone, there's really no excuse. You have a moral obligation to distance yourself 
from Black Lives Matter and using that as a brand if you do know that. And I'm willing to give people the benefit of the doubt as much as possible. But once you understand what they are and who they are, I don't understand why you can stand behind using that moniker. I don't understand how you could defend using that slogan unless you actually do agree with the things that they do and say. And so when it comes to this, it makes more sense to me. And this is, I, I have an All Lives Matter shirt. I use the hashtag All Lives Matter from time to time. Uh, why not go with All Lives Matter if you understand that underlying principle that the all would be inclusive of Black Lives Matter? Because again, they're trying to say, well, um, Black Lives Matter can't, uh, or All Lives Matter can't matter until Black Lives Matter. Well, yes, that is true. So if you are saying the phrase All Lives Matter, that would, of course, be inclusive of black lives. You just basically admitted that you understand that, so why not use that one instead? That one makes a lot more sense. It's far more inclusive. It's a lot less dividing. And it also doesn't share a name with an evil Marxist organization. Seems to me like that would be the slogan to run with. Anyway, the third big gripe that I have is that the University of Alabama is not just a company. It's not a private business. It's not an organization, even though it makes quite a bit of money, and, you know, that's good for them, I guess. I mean, obviously, I, I love football and everything. Uh, but if it is a state organization, and it is, it's basically, well, not basically, it is owned by the state of Alabama. It is a part of the University of Alabama, which is owned by Alabama as a state, just like Auburn, just like Troy, just like all of our other state schools. If it is owned by the state of Alabama then why is something that is an affiliate of the state of Alabama, something that is owned by the state, why are they coming out and giving a blatantly political statement like this, supporting an organization that gives money specifically to one side of the aisle, that gives money to Democrats, that supports Democrat causes? I mean, isn't there some kind of, and I'm asking this rhetorically, I know that there actually is, isn't there some kind of policy against that, openly supporting, like, I'm pretty sure that there would be people trying to, and, and frankly, I would agree with them if they did this, if uh, Auburn University, my own alma mater, came out tomorrow and was just saying, you know what, we support the National uh, Rifle Association, or we uh, believe that we are taxed enough already and did the, you know, big, did a big statement with the TEA so that you could tell that it was for the Tea Party. I believe there would be some people a little bit upset about that and uh, would be justified in doing so. If they came out with a blatantly political statement like that, well, then there should be some repercussions. And so that's one thing that bothers me about this, too. And and I'm not somebody that's vengeful. And again, I'm willing to give some grace and some benefit of the doubt when it comes to ignorance. But somebody at Alabama, especially an, an organization that big that has that much money, especially when you're talking about the athletic department, needs to come in and go like, uh, yeah we apologize and we're not going to do that anymore. No more openly political statements like that. And again, if you would run that video up until about a minute 20, no problem with it whatsoever. Didn't disagree with anything up until that point. It's when they started delving into, I mean, and the other things were just pot shots or, or things that I thought were philosophically dumb, not necessarily an issue of a state organization blatantly endorsing a a particular political opinion. But when they started invoking the name of Black Lives Matter, they were absolutely doing that. In the same way that I was talking about the Black Lives Matter thing that was painted on the fountain downtown. 
That's a public space. It's a government entity that allowed that to happen. That shouldn't be allowed. That's where the line ought to be drawn. In the same way that it wouldn't be right for on tax day for them to do the same thing for the Tea Party or the same thing for the National Rifle Association or the same thing for any other blatantly political organization, it's not right for them to do it here. That's all I'm saying. And another thing, and this isn't really a gripe, it's just more of a amusing observation. I actually posted this earlier on some of my social media platforms, and I noticed the first thing that a lot of Alabama fans did, uh, which I do find funny because the Alabama fan base, I imagine, a, a large percentage of it is going to be bothered by this. Um, I did find it quite hilarious that when I posted about this, I didn't say anything about Auburn. I didn't mention Auburn. I didn't even post that I was upset by this or didn't like it. I just put it out there and I said, hmm, wonder what the uh, Alabama fans' reaction to this is going to be. And without fail, I had at least three or four, I think, Alabama fans immediately start posting about Auburn and how Auburn's the same way. Well, first of all, one of the links that was posted was about how some Auburn players and even Coach Malzahn participated in a march, which I still don't like, but it is a little different because they are still private citizens. They can still do things of their own volition and their own accord. There's a little difference in marching in something that happened to happen in the city of Auburn and putting together a video using state resources to do so. So there's a little difference in that, but if Auburn had done exactly the same thing, like you replace Saban with Malzahn and, and put a bunch of Auburn players and they did the same thing, I'd be equally critical of them. This is not an Alabama versus Auburn thing. But I just I found it quite amusing that the Alabama fans' reaction was uh, they tried to make Auburn, uh, paint Auburn in the same light and say, well, Auburn's doing it too. <laughs> I don't know, it just... That's just, and I'm sure if the opposite had been true, if this had been Malzahn and a bunch of Auburn players and I posted the same thing, that you would have a bunch of Auburn people going on as like, well, Alabama's doing the same thing. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a goofy thing about football in the state. I find that really funny. But where this all springs from, and this is the thing that bothers me the most about it, the problem that underlies this whole thing is that it's a feeling of you will be made to comply, you will be made to care. That's the problem that I have that is sort of the undertow in all of this. Because just like Alabama said in that video, it's like, well, we can't remain silent. And other companies, other corporations, other organizations have all been, I mean, just rushing to a microphone to tell you how not racist they are, which again is hysterical and, and based on a hilarious premise. Just like that, though, there is a feeling that you will be made to care, you will be made to comply, you must come forward and kiss the ring and seek forgiveness, and we still might not grant it to you anyway, but you have to do it or else we're coming after you. I mean, if you were to look, and this is what I find so hilarious about this since Antifa has been a part of this movement and, and all of this, there's nothing more fascistic than that that you have to come forward and show your full and undying support to the cause or else you will be destroyed. I mean, that is a fascism and a microcosm. The way that they stamp out voices of discontent or disapproval is to make sure that they make it to where everybody to be able to operate must be on board with them. They must be part of the, the society. They must be part of the system. The reason that one political party rules in China and has for a long time and there is no real opposition is because that's exactly what they do. 
They make it to where you can't exist or function in society unless you pledge your undying love and support to the Communist Party there in China. And even though this is not happening through the government, we're seeing a similar thing unfold right here in America, that unless you're going to say the words Black Lives Matter, unless you come forward and kiss the ring, unless you bow before us, then you will be destroyed. You will be cast as one of the undesirables that must be gotten rid of. We will make it impossible for you to function in society. We may try to cause you to lose your job. We may try to cause you to uh, lose your business, your company, your livelihood, whatever it is. We're coming after you. And so many of these people are coming out and making these statements because they're trying to keep the mob from coming after them. That's the problem that I have with this whole thing. We're going to take a quick break here and we'll be back in just a minute on tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Now you've messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. <laughs> And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, we do have a little bit of a long one here, but I think it's going to be worth it. I've heard quite a few people complaining about me recently, and, uh, you know, I'm not above criticism. I'm a human being. I don't think that I made a mistake here, but I think that it's worth taking note of this. That have been saying that I've been a little too tough on Montgomery's mayor, Stephen Reed. Now, granted, I have been very tough on him, and I think that he deserves every bit of it. But... They were saying, can you at least say some nice things about Mayor Reed in conjunction with that? You know what? I think that is a reasonable request. And so tonight on The Daily Dose of Stupid, I'm going to showcase three mayors that are worse than Mayor Reed. In a segment I like to call three mayors that are worse than Mayor Reed. So here we go. <laughs> uh, there are mayors in this country that are indeed worse than Montgomery's own, and I think that it's fair to point that out. So we're going to go to a couple of them. First of all, the mayor of Columbus, Ohio. I don't know how many of you have heard of this. He is actually considering a proposal to rename the city of Columbus to Flavortown. <laughs> I swear I'm not making this up. This is not a Babylon Bee article that I got punked on. This is a real thing. <laughs> There has been <laughs> this same mayor, and it's because Columbus, you know, Christopher Columbus, who is the, the person that is often credited with, even though there's quite a bit of historical debate, and, and I think it's well-founded that he wasn't actually the first uh, person from the Western world to discover the New World. But nonetheless, he was a person that, that did uh, do a lot of exploring in that region, and of course coming to Hispaniola and, and so on and so forth. So Christopher Columbus, you know, often being the person that people think of as, as being credited as the person who discovered the New World, uh, he's come under fire recently for some of the things that he did. And because of that, they are considering renaming the city of Columbus, Ohio, Flavortown. They have already announced the removal of the Columbus statue outside of the, or the, sort of in the center of town there. And this is a statement from Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther. So this is him speaking. For many people in our community, the statue represents patriarchy, oppression, and divisiveness. That does not represent our great city, and we will no longer live in the shadow of our ugly past. <laughs> this is what happens when you have so baptized yourself into the woke culture 
that you think that just because people believe something is divisive and something is offensive that it automatically is. Where you have already jettisoned truth, you have already jettisoned fact, you don't care what facts are, you don't care what truth is, you just care that there are people offended. And this is what he says in this statement. That because there are people in our community that see it as divisive and see it as offensive, therefore it must be bad. I got news for you. It doesn't matter what community you're living in, in any city in America, no matter how red or how blue or how Christian or how, you know, homogenous it is in any other demographically conceivable way, you're going to have some differences of opinion. There are going to be things that offend literally anybody. You're always going to find some person that complains. Believe me, I've, I've done talk radio for a long time and, and for a good portion of my career where I had callers. And I can tell you, even though the vast majority of people are good and reasonable and want to listen to you, occasionally there's crazy people that, I mean, the words that are coming out of their mouth just don't make any sense. You're going to find people that can be angry about anything. And so the idea that there are people in our community that find it divisive, ergo, we have to get rid of it, cast it out. Uh, it is so ridiculous. But he's not the only person that thinks that. As, as insane as that is, there are now 17,000 signatures on the petition to change the name of the town from Columbus, Ohio to Flavortown. And what's crazy about this, too, is that the guy that started the petition, he doesn't live in Columbus. He lives in Tennessee. He doesn't even live near Columbus. So it's not even like a guy that lives in a suburb and commutes in and works in Columbus or has some kind of connection to it. He apparently did live at Columbus at one point in his life, but he doesn't disclose how long ago that was or for what period of time. But he lived in Columbus for a while, but hasn't in many years, and now is living in Tennessee. And he's the one that started the petition to change the name to Flavortown. Look, if you're going to be dumb and change your town's name, can you at least come up with a better name than Flavortown? It's, I don't know if I should even say this on a Christian show. It sounds like something a pimp came up with. <laughs> uh, you can't make this crap up. It's just too funny. Uh, but this is why you can't let millennials have nice things, because... I think this is the reason that a lot of the people in the older generation, especially with millennials and Gen Z, just want to like uh, shut down new ideas because this has got to be a millennial thing. This is something that, that my generation, sadly, has come up with. That uh, we'll just call the town Flavortown. <laughs> it's, it's like when you know kids are little and they want to change their name to something crazy like Princess Consuela Banana Hammock. Or uh, want to, you know, get a, a crazy tattoo that they don't realize that, you know, at some point they're going to have to have a job interview. And that may be something that may not be the best look for somebody that's applying to be, oh, I don't know, like the, the vice president of finance at a major corporation. Uh, and they're not thinking along those lines. And that's why their parents are like, no, bad idea. I'm going to go ahead and turn that one down. The short-sightedness is so ridiculous. Uh flavored town. That's just, that tickles me. Uh, the second mayor that is worse than Mayor Reed is the mayor of Seattle, who apparently, because uh, if you've been following the ongoing saga that is the Chaz, the autonomous zone there in Seattle, 
this was the mayor when that whole thing started back on June the 11th, which, uh, oh, I just June the 11th. That's one of my buddy's birthdays. So that'll be something that's real easy for me to remember when that started. So June 11th, uh, this is the mayor talking about the Chaz. Um, we've got four blocks in Seattle that you just saw pictures of that is more like a block party atmosphere. It's not an armed takeover. It's not a military junta. Um, we will we will make sure that we can restore this, but we have block parties and, and the like in this part of Seattle all the time. It's it's known for that. So I think the president, number one, there is no threat right now to the public. They're in the street fighting a system of domination, and he doesn't understand that. And his response is always one that's bellicose and militaristic, but he doesn't honor the military in that way either, as you've seen from the line of generals that have disputed him. So I think he says dominate because he is totally does not understand what is happening in America. And he is desperately trying to start the old fights and the old divisions that put him in power in the first place. How long do you think Seattle in those few blocks looks like this? I don't know. We could have the summer of love. You know, that was so insane that even Chris Cuomo wound up pushing back on it a little bit. I mean, crazy radical leftist Chris Cuomo. Even he was kind of like, mm, I don't know about all that a little later in that interview uh, about how peaceful the autonomous zone was. But uh, that was, remember, this wasn't like at the very beginning of the protest where uh, there were just some people marching in the streets. This was after they had already taken over that area. This is after they had already taken over a police precinct, gutted it, graffitied it, and had taken over the region and weren't letting police officers and weren't letting certain people in and had set up a border. So it's not as though, even though this was a, you know, a couple weeks ago, it's not as though this took place, this interview was happening before all that happened. They had already set up the autonomous zone by this time. And there's the mayor of Seattle, uh, Mayor Durkin, sitting there with a straight face saying, oh, it's like a great big block party. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember the last time a block party set up an armed militia to keep people out of the region of the city that they wanted and declared themselves independent from the country and took over a police precinct. Now, maybe I'm going to the wrong block parties, but I don't remember that being a staple of those kinds of events. And yet this is how the mayor tried to categorize it. Oh, it's nothing to worry about. We have block parties all the time. It's just going to be a, you know, a summer of love. And, and the idea that President Trump is even suggesting that we may have to go in and take it back by force. Oh, that's just ridiculous. Nobody would do that. And now, of course, we see what the autonomous zone has happened, that there have been Three people, at least, that we know of for sure, shot. One person has died. And we've also seen incredible levels of property damage, people literally defecating in the streets, lots of armed robbery, assault. People have been raped. People have been stoned. <laughs> I mean, stoned less in the biblical sense, more like just had things pelted at them instead of being stoned to death. But you know what I'm saying. All of these things have taken place, and, and 
weirdly enough, some of it before the mayor even did this, and she is with a straight face going on national TV, oh no, it's fine, there's nothing to worry about. There's no reason to even believe that this thing is a threat to public safety, and, and people that are saying that, they just, they don't understand why these people are out here. This person's a dunderhead. Maybe she's a radical Marxist, maybe she supports the cause, maybe she's just an ignoramus. I don't know. But either way, I think this qualifies her as being worse than Mayor Reed. I, th I think that that's fair, especially when you consider that this is what she was saying just a couple of days ago, where she finally was forced to confront that she was apparently completely dead wrong when about what she was saying earlier in that CNN interview on June the 11th. This is just from two days ago. I am hopeful and confident that these organizations that we are in dialogue with and others will work to encourage individuals to leave voluntarily. Good luck with that. Considering that these are people that took over an actual plot of land in an American city, that they set up barricades, that they have been beating up people that disagree with them, beating up people that even say things they disagree with, and have been setting up smaller zones inside the autonomous zone to keep certain people out that won't let you in based on your race, weirdly enough, which is, you know, uh, weirdly enough, we actually found uh, a case of systematic racism. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with they're probably not going to leave peacefully. I mean, I hope they do. I really do. I, I would genuinely like to not see this thing go any worse than it already has. Uh, maybe they'll, you know, just decide, ah, this is, we're getting kind of tired of this. We're running out of money. We're running out of food. And I'm just going to head back to my parents' basement to play Minecraft. I mean, maybe that happens. I don't know. I hope that it does. But considering everything that we've seen out of the Chaz, I kind of doubt that that's going to take place. And you would think that the mayor would be smart enough to learn from her previous I don't even know what you can call it, but gross mischaracterization or incorrect prediction, however you want to categorize it, that, yeah, maybe these people are serious and maybe I was way too optimistic and way too forgiving early on and, and maybe I should just hedge my bets and wait and see what happens instead of making predictions as to what direction this thing is going to go. And I do find it funny that she's also suggesting doing exactly the very same thing that she accused Donald Trump of being a monster for just a few days earlier, going in there and taking it by force if needed. Well, that's exactly what President Trump was saying should happen. And she said that he's a horrible person and just doesn't understand these people. Well, I guess maybe based on that standard that I guess she just doesn't understand why these people are there. I think she actually doesn't understand why these people are there. But I think that it's actually the opposite way. I think that she's assuming way too much good intent than they actually have. I think she's assuming that they're actually far better than they really are. Good luck convincing them to leave, seriously. Uh, but I'm, I'm not sure if she's just a Marxist or she's actually just a naive imbecile. But either way, I think it's fair to say worse than Mayor Reed. I, I think that that's a, a fair categorization to make. Now, a uh, another mayor in Oregon, of all places, has approved a measure where they actually have said that there is an exception for wearing a face mask because there is a mandatory, you have to wear a face mask in this particular city, just like Mayor Reed's uh, imaginary illegal 
face mask ordinance that he just decided to do by himself without the approval of city council. But I think that this qualifies as worse because there is an exception for this face mask. And, and believe me, I'm in favor of as many exceptions for the face mask ordinance as possible. In fact, I think that it shouldn't exist. But this particular exception is if you're not white, then you don't have to wear the mask. That's literally written into the law. Which, again, is hilarious because if you want an example of systematic racism, actually that qualifies. Because it is part of the system. It is a law that is actually on the books saying that a certain race has to abide by a law and another one does not. That is actually the literal definition of the word privilege. Because the word privilege is actually a French word that derives from laws that only applied to certain people. I'm hitting my mic like I'm an amateur today. Laws that only applied to certain people, but not to other people. That there were some people that had to abide by certain laws. This usually applied to things like guilds or whatever, uh, people that were allowed to work in the city of Paris and people that weren't allowed, so on and so forth. And now we actually do have that. We have an example of systematic racism, but it's coming from a far-left mayor in Oregon that is saying that white people, you do have to abide by the law. Everybody else, you get a pass. <laughs> so yeah, systematic racism apparently does exist in America. It's just coming from leftists, not from everybody else. So racism is definitely alive and well, at least in that one part of the country, in that one city. But again, that would actually qualify them as worse than Mayor Reed. And uh, even though this one wasn't a mayor, I figured I'd go ahead and include it because it is a city. So the city of New York is actually going after Teddy Roosevelt and now Thomas Jefferson as well. So Mayor Bill de Blasio actually announced the removal yesterday of the Teddy Roosevelt statue that has sat outside the Museum of Natural History for about 50 years. And here's the thing that you need to know about this story with me personally. I don't like Teddy Roosevelt. Never have. And the reason that I don't is because he was a progressive. He was actually the first progressive president, despite being a Republican. Not only did he claim the mantle, he governed that way. He greatly increased the power and the scope of the federal government. He greatly increased the... Uh, one of the main things that he did was starting the National Park Service. And you'll notice that the states that were largely being settled around the time that Teddy Roosevelt was president are the states where the federal government owns a giant chunk of their land. That's not done by mistake. Teddy Roosevelt was a central control progressive. He believed in a consolidation of the federal power, and he believed in governing in that way. He believed in a lot of the socialistic ideas. He actually ran against other Republicans because they refused to wear the progressive mantle. He actually tried to primary his own party to become the Republican candidate. And so, when it comes to Teddy Roosevelt, I mean, he's... I don't think he was as bad as maybe FDR, his cousin. But still, like, he was still a progressive. He's still somebody I don't like. Still don't want a statue torn down. Especially when you consider that at this particular museum, the Museum of Natural History, this is a museum where Teddy Roosevelt himself played a large role. In fact, I believe his father was one of the people that founded it or was the curator there, like the head curator at this museum for a long period of time. This was something that Teddy Roosevelt himself supported. He helped make that museum what it was 
they still want to take down Teddy Roosevelt's statue. Now, I do find it funny that Teddy Roosevelt did have some pretty racist tendencies, especially against Native Americans. And so it's funny that they are actually finally tearing down a statue where the guy, at least there is some evidence of him being racist. But I still don't agree with it. I still agree that even if, if he was a racist, we still shouldn't be tearing down his statue because he is a significant part of American history. You preserve history good and bad. History is a set of facts. It shouldn't be romanticized and it shouldn't be demonized. It should just be presented for what it is, and the people can make their own decisions on it. And yet, Mayor Bill de Blasio has already approved the removal of the statue, which I would say makes him worse than Mayor Stephen Reed. But another thing that is ridiculous, and I don't know, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Mayor de Blasio has not actually issued an official statement on this yet, so I can't really pin this one on him. But they are also trying to get rid of Thomas Jefferson's statue, which currently sits inside the uh, city council meeting hall, I guess it is. It, it's not really clear. But this is a clip from the Speaker of the city council, so basically their version of Speaker of the House. You can see uh, this tweet from him. And he says, and this is from Councilman Corey Johnson, the statue of Thomas Jefferson inside City Hall is a statue of a slave master. It's long been time to take it down. And I join council members, and then it lists a whole bunch of them, in the call to make that happen. <sighs> I can't believe we're still on this. Well, I can. Because like I said earlier, feelings don't care about your facts. And these people that have feelings based on something... To them, that's far more important than actually doing research or finding out their facts. Now, I'm not going to go through this whole thing again because I've done it so many times. Thomas Jefferson was not a racist, and he was anti-slavery. If you don't believe me, go back, look at my July 4th special, where I actually read the transcript of Thomas Jefferson's original draft of the Declaration of Independence. One of the main reasons that he wanted to separate from England, the reason that in his original draft, even though it's not, it wasn't in the final one because they were afraid they wouldn't get the Southerners to be able to sign in on it, but when Thomas Jefferson was just riffing and putting in everything that he thought they should be separating from Britain on, one of the main reasons, and he adds emphasis himself, capitalizing words, pressing down really hard with the pen, I've seen photocopies of the original drafts and you can see how passionate he is in his writing saying that it is absurd for the king of England to even refer to himself as a Christian king for supporting and propagating slavery. He also tried to get rid of slavery in three different jurisdictions in his own state of Virginia when he was a member of that city's governing or sorry that state's governing body that was the legislation that he drafted, he put up, he tried to get rid of slavery and lost by only one vote and was in the depths of despair when it didn't pass. He actually said, oh, to God that I could have changed one heart. He was dedicated to the eradication of slavery. He tried to get rid of slavery again at the national level. And then, at a different point in his, time, in his life, he tried to get rid of slavery in France. He even tried to get rid of it in another country. That's how dedicated he was to the eradication of slavery and tried to free his own slaves upon his death. Now, unfortunately, the state of Virginia would not allow him to do so legally because Jefferson at the time was about $2 million, uh, about $2 million in debt if you were to adjust it by 
today's standards, and Virginia had a law that you could not release your slaves if you were in debt because, you know, that would be like giving away assets that could be used to pay off your debt. So as ridiculous as that is, as absurd as that is, and by the way, they actually specifically changed the law because of George Washington. They actually made that law because George Washington did release his slaves upon his death, and they tried to make sure that they could keep as many people from releasing their slaves as possible in reaction to George Washington, another person that tried to get rid of slavery, in, in reaction to him releasing his slaves when he died. But in the 1784 Notes on Virginia, this is what Thomas Jefferson wrote. Uh, and, and by the way, this was in reaction to uh, fears that there might be a slave revolt. He said, The Almighty has no attribute which can take side with us in such a contest. I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and his justice cannot sleep forever. In other words, what Jefferson was saying to people that were scared that there may be a slave revolt in the state of Virginia, he said, you know what scares me? If there was a slave revolt, I'm afraid that God would be on the slave side because what we're doing to them is wrong and sinful. That's what Jefferson believed. He believed that the institution of slavery was so wrong and so repugnant, and he actually advocates for the abolishment of slavery in Notes of Virginia, partly because of this reason, that if the slaves did rise up, God would side with them because that would be the right thing to do. So it wasn't just a political matter for Jefferson why he wanted to get rid of slavery. He believed that God himself would be angry with us and oppose us and punish us for the institution of slavery because it was a universal moral wrong. That's who Thomas Jefferson was, and that's whose statue they're trying to get rid of because he was a slave master. Yeah, he owned slaves, but he was trying to stop it. They wouldn't let him release his slaves. What was he going to do? Just say, okay, guys, go wherever you want? You don't think the people in Virginia would have stopped that from a legal perspective? That they would have just rounded up the slaves and given them to somebody else or something to that effect? Jefferson was against the institution of slavery and knew that it was a moral wrong. I don't know what else you want from the guy. He tried to get rid of it. And if you were doing this mental exercise in, in morality. Put yourself in the mind of somebody today, which shouldn't be too hard. I mean, you are a modern person if you're living to the, uh, I mean, unless you're watching this like 100 years in the future, and if you are, God bless you. Uh, but uh, If you're within the sound of my voice right now and you're watching this live, if you were a person that was totally against slavery, thought it was 100% wrong, and you were put in Thomas Jefferson's position, what would you do different? Would you try to end slavery? Because he did that. Would you try to free your slaves? Because he did that. What else do you want the man to do? Is there any other action, if you were a person in Jefferson's position, is there anything else, anything more that he could have done that he didn't already do? Because I can't think of anything. Maybe you can, I don't know. But I genuinely can't. And by the way, I'm not the only person with this opinion. You know who else talked a great deal about Thomas Jefferson? Do you know who else mentioned Thomas Jefferson? Civil rights leaders like Frederick Douglass, who was another abolitionist that actually lived around the time that slavery was abolished. In fact, Frederick Douglass said in his speech in 1850, uh, he was quoting Thomas Jefferson and added afterward his own commentary where he said, 
Quote, such is the warning uh, voice of Thomas Jefferson. Every day's experience since its utterance until now confirms its wisdom and commends its truth. What was he quoting? That quote that I just read to you. Where Thomas Jefferson was talking about God would be siding with the slaves in their liberation. Frederick Douglass said exactly the same thing in saying that the words of Jefferson were wise and true. He held up Jefferson as a hero for writing the words that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. He constantly quoted Thomas Jefferson, rightfully so. He understood that Jefferson was one of the guys on his side, the side that wanted to free the slaves. You know who else quoted Thomas Jefferson? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This is a quote from a letter to Birmingham City, uh, from a Birmingham City jail on April 16th, 1963. And I quote, But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction in that label. Was, it not, was not Jesus an extremist for love? Quote, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully persecute you. And Thomas Jefferson, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Dr. Martin Luther King just said in the same breath that he quotes Jesus Christ, Thomas Jefferson. Now, I'm not saying that Dr. Martin Luther King was saying Thomas Jefferson is on equal footing with Jesus, and, and Dr. Martin Luther King would, of course, never suggest that. But what he's saying is, when he's in a prison cell, thinking about great men and people that stood up for doing what was right, who are the two people that come to his mind? Jesus Christ and Thomas Jefferson. Just being mentioned in the same breath with Jesus would be a great honor to Thomas Jefferson, I'm sure. But think about that. Dr. Martin Luther King, just like Frederick Douglass, saw Thomas Jefferson as one of the good guys. And now we have a bunch of angry, white, woke liberals that are saying, take down Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was on the side of abolishing slavery, no matter how you slice it, and people with far more intelligence than these knuckleheads that know nothing about history trying to get rid of Thomas Jefferson's statues, men like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Frederick Douglass that studied him with hindsight after his death were saying, no, he was one of our guys. He was one of the guys on the side of freeing black people. He was on the side of people being equal and having all their rights, just like everybody else. When they look back as an example of somebody in the Founders that was on the side of black people, somebody that was an advocate for their rights, they think of Thomas Jefferson, and you should too. Let's go to the Chaplain's Report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Our Chaplain's Report today, we're going to be continuing in the book of 1 Samuel like we have been for quite some time now. We've actually been in the book of Samuel for a while. But we're about halfway through. We're in Samuel chapter 14. 
And just so you know what's going on here, if you haven't been keeping up with the Chaplain's Report every day. So this little episode that we're about to look at, the Philistines have essentially been defeated. They're fleeing in every direction because of something that Jonathan did. He came up and tried to negotiate with them and Probably by providence, I think that there's no other way to explain it. The Philistines became terrified, thinking that Jonathan was hiding a whole bunch of men in, in holes there in the hills that he was coming out of, and they freaked out and ran. <laughs> uh, so this happens, and the Philistines have been largely defeated. They're still pursuing some of their forces, but basically Israel's already won the day. Everybody's celebrating. Everybody's happy. They are now pursuing their enemies, but the, the Philistines are in full retreat. And Israel has basically already run the battle. They're just trying to follow up here. And when King Saul orders all of the men to pursue after them, he makes this oath where he says that if any man eats before sunset, let him be accursed until I have prevailed over my enemies. I think there's a couple of reasons why that's a mistake. One of it is it kind of puts the odious on King Saul to a degree. Like, I, I'm not saying that this is full-on sinful, and I think it's at least questionable. I think it's in murky water, I guess, is the best way to describe it. I'm not sure if this would be... It's hard to gauge exactly what was in Saul's heart at the time. But either way, Saul has essentially made it about himself, that they are going to fast, and, and all the men that are in his company are not going to eat anything until the sun goes down. By the way, that was Jewish tradition. You don't fast from morning till evening. You don't fast from the time you wake up until the time you go to bed. You actually fast uh, from night to night because that's how the Jews measured time. The day actually started uh, at, at sundown, not at, you know, that's just how they count time. But anyway, so Saul goes ahead and he says, until the sun sets, nobody's to eat any food. And then the military goes on to pursue the Philistines. And Jonathan, remember, was off doing his own thing. In fact, he's the reason that the Philistines are fleeing in the first place is because he was apart from the rest of the people. He went off to... to meet with them on his own. And so Jonathan wasn't there when this proclamation takes place. He and his armor bearer are there by themselves. And so they catch up to the, the Israel army later, but they weren't there when Saul made this proclamation. He didn't know that. And so there's been some honey that has been dripping there in the forest or the woods or however you want to describe it as they're pursuing the Philistines. He hadn't caught up with the Israelites yet. And so he, not knowing that this oath had happened or that all these people had, had made this command, he just dips down there and, and takes a bit of the honey. And so this is really where we pick up on this episode in the life of Saul and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14, verses 28 through 30. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under an oath, saying, Cursed, is the, uh, cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. And Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I have take, tasted a little of this honey. How much more, if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil and of their enemies, which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. This is actually a pretty interesting little episode. And there is some spiritual wisdom in here, but I think there's also some, some physical wisdom here as well. First of all, we're going to go to the big universal truth. I think that's a good place to start here. And that is, you can't hold people accountable for what they don't know. You can't hold people accountable for what they don't know. I'm sure that Jonathan, if nothing else, out of respect for his father, 
and in this case, from a military perspective, the 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 respect of his captain probably would have abided by these rules if he had known that. He wasn't doing this as a an act of defiance or disobedience or anything like that. He just didn't know that this was taking place. He was not with the men when this happened, and so he did this act out of ignorance. He didn't know that that was something that was against the rules. And so from a moral perspective, I think one thing that it illustrates is that you can't be held accountable for what you don't know. Now, on the larger, grander scale, things that you should have been able to figure out, that's a different story, but this was sort of a random, arbitrary rule. And remember, this was not a command from God. This was not something of moral significance. This was just sort of an idea that Saul had on a whim. Which illustrates another universal truth, that there is a profound difference in the words of man and the words of God. So, if I were in this same scenario, and I defied my father, especially if I were a young kid or something like that, but even today, like, if I just disrespected my father or my mother, if I, if I were guilty of the sin of disrespecting my parents, that would definitely be wrong because God told me not to. But if it were something random and arbitrary and I didn't know that they had made that command, that wouldn't be something that you could hold against me. Because I just didn't know. I'm not a mind reader, and, and maybe they just hadn't communicated it clearly or whatever. That's something that you can't hold against a person because that's a human-made commandment. A God-made commandment is a little different. And so that's one of the universal truths that it illustrates is that you can't hold Jonathan accountable for him not knowing that Saul had already made this oath, and so when he goes ahead and does this, you know, Jonathan is essentially held blameless when that takes place. But it also illustrates a secondary truth. Because you'll notice that one of the things that Jonathan is saying is, you know, our slaughter of the Philistines has not been great. Think about this. And Jonathan is pretty much the sole reason, of course, with God's help, but Jonathan is pretty much the sole reason the Philistines are even in full retreat. And what does he make note of there when he hears about this oath? He says, wait, Dad really told everybody that no one's allowed to eat until the day's over? Do you notice that I'm in good spirits and my eyes have been lighted up? In, in other words, that's sort of like a sign of vitality or whatever. He says, and our slaughter of the Philistines hasn't been all that great since this took place. What Jonathan is essentially saying is the men are hungry, and obviously a marching army pursuing enemies is kind of a physically demanding thing. Maybe part of the reason that that is taking place is because King Saul foolishly said, nobody eats until the end of the day. Well, you can see why that would be problematic. Now, there's nothing wrong with fasting. In fact, the Bible talks quite a bit about fasting, and I think, frankly, it's something that a lot of modern Christians have forgotten how to do and don't really do nearly as much as we ought to. So, this isn't an anti-fasting story. But what it is illustrating is that there's a time and a place. There are certain times where fasting, of course, would be very good. When you're a soldier chasing down the enemy through the field, probably not a great time to go on a hunger strike. <laughs> and that's what Jonathan is sort of bringing up here. He's like, maybe if, if we had been able to eat something, the men wouldn't be so tired, we wouldn't be hungry, we would be a little bit better at our jobs. This was a decision by Saul, a man that is charged with the lives of the men that he is leading. 
that put them in danger. This is something that could literally cost lives because the men are hungry and tired and haven't been able to eat. And they need that energy to be able to fight who they're going to fight. And Jonathan, even though it is his father, and even though I'm sure he respects him and would do whatever he said, in under normal circumstances, he's saying, this is a bad idea. Look at how tired and hungry the men are. Look how we've not been able to do our jobs because of this. And so the purpose of fasting is very clear here. It's something that is done for spiritual enrichment, but there are times where fasting wouldn't necessarily be appropriate. By the way, this is a New Testament concept too. You may recall that the Pharisees and the judges of the law were actually asking Jesus, hey, why is it that your disciples just don't fast? And that would have been something that for a religious person of Jesus' time would have been pretty weird. And so the question isn't without merit, but you remember what Jesus' answer was? He says, how are they supposed to fast when the bridegroom is with them? You know, just like Jesus being with the disciples, which of course would be cause for celebration, a time for merriment, then here we see right here that God has basically, through providence, granted Israel a big victory. Not through their own merits, but through God's providence, through Jonathan. And he basically already set the table for them. That's not a good time to fast either. This is a time of celebration. This is a time where they're going to have to have that energy to be able to do what what they would presumably need to do to chase down the Philistines. And yet Saul declares a fast. Well, every indication that we're given here is that this is a really bad time for a fast. Nothing wrong with fasting. Fasting, good. But there's a time and a place for it. And there's certain times where it's actually not appropriate, and this is a pretty good illustration of that. But I think ultimately one thing that it illustrates is that even when we have good intention... Impulsiveness, not a great leadership trait. Flying off the handle, coming up with things as you go along, just kind of spitting things out as they pop into your head, not a great thing for a leader to do. And, you know, to be fair, Saul has already made some mistakes here this day. We already saw the episode where he went ahead and, and offered the sacrifice, even though that he, he wasn't supposed to. But in all fairness... I don't think Saul meant anything bad by this. And, you know, from a spiritual standpoint, maybe he even meant it to be something that we could do basically to show our dedication or our gratitude or something. But that's not the purpose of fasting. And I think that maybe Saul missed that in all of this and in this confusion. And he kind of just on the spur of the moment decided this was something that all the men were going to do. But impulsiveness is not a great leadership trait. Intelligence, calculation, wisdom... These are all traits that define a great leader. And there were times where Saul kind of displayed that, but this is not one of those times. And I think, at least partially his fault, partially where he went wrong, is where he started to make it all about him. This day when I will conquer and I will overcome my enemies, then everybody can eat again. Mm, that seems like you're making fasting, which is supposed to be a spiritual dedication to God, really a lot more about you, and it, it almost seems like you're treating God like a cosmic gumball machine. Like, if we do this thing, maybe God will give us great success, and that's the wrong-headed kind of attitude to have. So, ultimately, I think what it goes back to is, whatever you're doing in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord, make sure you're actually doing it for Him. Make sure that when you do something, because there are some things, spiritual things, that uh, it may not be a good idea to fast around either. I know personally, and I don't want to get too personal here, 
But uh, when I'm about to do a big sermon or something like that, that's not a time of fasting for me. I might fast in preparation of the sermon, but the actual delivery of it, I can get distracted by being hungry. And so I can't fast when, you know, I'm about to step up to the podium. Maybe I fast to get a little bit spiritually more deep in preparation for it. So when I'm planning it and, and doing my research, I might fast then, but I'm definitely not doing it when I'm getting up in front of people to speak. Because I've already learned through experience that's not a good thing to do. And so it's important to be wise and to take judgment and assessment as it comes to you and, and judge those things on a case-by-case basis. I think that's a lesson that Saul and, and really all of Israel learned from this episode. That's going to be our show for this week. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll be back next week. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.